Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. I don't encounter people very often who understand and see the value of talking to people who you disagree with, much less people who hate you. And um, yeah. I've definitely personally felt quite isolated in that impulse. Mm. I have my whole history. It is what it is. I've accused of a horrible crime and went to jail and mm -hmm. then had to fight mm -hmm. to prove my innocence. All of that is a part of it. But I remember sitting there in my jail cell thinking that I wanted to know why. Like, I was deeply, mm. deeply haunted by this feeling that it wasn't happening to me because there are psychopathic evil people in the world. It was because hmm. these people thought they were doing the right thing by wrongfully convicting me and vilifying hmm. me and doing all of these things that were so clearly wrong and and so clearly hurtful. And yet I was like, hmm. why? Why hmm. is this happening? It's funny, both you and I are interested in other people's whys, but I think what is interesting for us to dissect together is our whys of why we want to know their whys, you know? <laughs> the like second level whys. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is, is Labyrinths. We know a thing or two about having difficult conversations. We've spoken to people we disagree with about sensitive topics. We've mediated conversations between aggrieved parties, and we've tried to engage with and have compassion for the people convinced that Amanda is a psychopathic killer. It can be draining, uplifting, frustrating, and fascinating all at once. We wanted to talk about that impulse, why we have it, why it's important, what its risks and rewards are, and we couldn't think of a better person to dig into it with than Dylan Marin, the host and creator of the podcast, Conversations with People Who Hate Me, and a book of the same name. When I talk to people about that impulse, they go, you're crazy. Why would you want to do that? There are a million ways to spend your energy. Why would you go towards the negativity? And I wonder if you have also encountered that same kind of question uh, response <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i definitely get that charged curiosity if that's what we want to call it of people just wondering why i would ever want to do something like this something like this is dylan's podcast it started because dylan was receiving an avalanche of digital abuse as he was making a viral video series on facebook for seriously tv the videos tackled social justice issues with a signature snarky, sarcastic tone. If you can look the other way when our country bombs Syria, then you use this product already. Today, I'm unboxing Privilege. I was getting a lot of internet hate, most of which was coming from the um, kind of caricaturistic uh, right, uh, the other side of the political spectrum, so to speak. But of course, there was a small but significant portion that was coming from my fellow lefties and liberals. I didn't really know how to deal with it. There's no manual for how to process this. I don't think our minds have yet been meant to sort such an onslaught of negativity. And so 
Because this was Facebook, I could click on the profile picture of the person who sent me this hate, and I could learn so much about them. You gain access to hundreds of pictures they've been tagged in over the last five years. Um, you see a resume, you see a partial family tree, sometimes a full family tree. And before you know it, you're like three clicks away from learning their great aunt's favorite band, you know? <laughs> and so with these disparate pieces of biographical data, I was able to construct these fictional backstories for them. And by constructing the fictional backstories, I was able to see them as human. Mm. And seeing them as human was almost a coping mechanism for me because it made me feel less afraid of them. Mm. If they were human, then that meant they weren't these distant monsters who I was terrified of. They were instead human beings who I could one day reach out to. And that one day started with conversations with people who hate me. Hey, is this Josh? Hey, yeah, it is. How's your day going so far? It's good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. So In each episode of his podcast's first season, Dylan called up someone who'd insulted him online and just had a conversation. The goal was to humanize his detractors for himself. And it worked. It's almost like my brain needed a, w a place to sort them and then a solution for what to do with them when they were in that room. And I didn't want to keep them in that room. I wanted to, I don't know, use it as a kind of bridge to get to know people outside of my echo chamber, to get to know why someone would write something like that, and to turn this like very contentious relationship, which is, some would argue, not a relationship, a parasocial relationship, and turning that instead into a kind of strange friendship. Mm. My whole project is based on walking towards conflict and, and not away from it. I'm so curious about your why of the why, the why you're interested in the whys, mm. um, if you even are aware of it. Because it took me a, a quite a long time to figure out the why of the whys for me. Yeah, I think it starts with a feeling, which is where mm. anything really starts if we all come down to it. And I wonder mm. how much of that feeling is just genuine curiosity and also a sense that I've never really been comforted by easy stories, like a really easy hmm. story to tell about somebody who sends someone like you really blatant, horrible, like homophobic, horrible commentary, hmm. or in my case, telling me that they want my baby to get murdered or something like that. It's very easy to tell a very simple story about that person, that they're I don't know, they're mm. disturbed <laughs> is Completely. a nice way of Completely. saying it. And that's an easy story to tell, but I don't think it's an honest story. And if you really want to understand why, you have to have a sort of scientific process where you look at something. You actually have to look at it instead of tell yourself a story about it. Yeah. And looking at something requires gaining direct observations and gaining evidence. And also, I think, putting yourself in a new position with somebody, which I think is the interesting thing that you've done where you're like, oh, no, now we're actually just talking to each other instead of at each other. I I feel the same way when I think about, oh, I wonder what it would feel like to sit in a room 
with some of these tabloid journalists who wrote like horrendous yeah. headlines about me. It was very easy for them to dehumanize me when I was over there. But if I'm just mm. sitting there in front of them, would they yeah. have the balls to say those kinds of things to me or not? Completely. I, I think your distinction of the easy story versus the honest story is like the perfect encapsulation of that. I end up overusing words like complexities and nuanced, but I think easy versus honest is a way more poetically beautiful <laughs> um, encapsulation of that. And I think you're totally right. You, you know, the tagline of my show is, remember, there's a human on the other side of the screen. And the really complicated thing is that goes both ways. Mm. And so to apply it to your story, if the screen is the bars of a jail cell and the screen is the paper of a tabloid, the person who you are wishing horrible things upon because you think you know something that they did, that person, you, Amanda, is a human being. And then the really complicated thing is the reverse is true too. Mm. You know, the easy story that I could jump onto here is to be like, yeah, they're just monsters. Those tabloid writers are monsters. And it's like, do I think that the pain that they have caused is real to a whole variety of people? Yes. Do I think that that pain is real for you? But we can hold both of those truths in, in our hand at the same time. The pain that they have caused is real. The sword that they wield is very sharp um, and wide-reaching. And yet they're also human beings. And so what I always try and push people about the complexity of my tagline of remember there's a human on the other side of the screen is like the person who receives the hate, human being, mm -hmm. who's going to be hurt by it. The person who writes it is also a human being. I don't use the word trolls mm. because I think trolls is such the easy encapsulation of who is writing negative comments. But I can tell you from five years of making this show, it's so much more complicated than that. And I think we already are moving past this, but we must move past the idea of the, and I'm using the heaviest quotes <laughs> right now, the sad, lonely guy who lives in his mother's basement. Mm. We must move on from this like false understanding of who writes negative comments online. First of all, I have spoken to many people who have written some very hurtful things to me. Of all the people I've spoken to who have written a negative thing online, I cannot express to you how few of them fit that bill, mm. how many of them have these robust social lives and families. And we also cling to easy and poetically beautiful partial truths, like hurt people hurt people, mm. which is like, that is definitely true sometimes. Sometimes people take the hurt they feel and they put it onto someone else, and other times not. So I think if I've done anything with this project, I want us to see the different ways we interact with each other online versus how we interact with each other when brought even voice to voice with each other on a phone call. But it's also to kind of complicate these simple understandings we have of people both ways. Mm. We should complicate what we call a troll. We should question why we use that word. And of course, it, it should go without saying. Um, but we should really question the other labels that were hurled in my direction. Um, but I think that's a pretty standard talking point of like, yeah, let's question the gay slurs that are hur hurled at people, which I'm on board with. But we, I know that we are all 
capable of doing both at the same Mm. time. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. I know that when I've talked to people in my community, and my community is wrongfully convicted people, right? The kinds Mm -hmm. of people who we would be talking to who are on the other side of the table from us would be professional law enforcement, prosecutors, uh, Mm -hmm. people who believe that any sort of work that calls their work into question or asks for more transparency Mm -hmm. is by very nature going to be putting victims at risk. So there's all these really difficult conversations that wrongfully convicted people want to have. And at the Mm. same time, there's this sense of fatalism, like, what's the Mm. point? They're never going to listen to me, right? So we're talking from a place of a lot of experience here, five years of conversations Mm. with people who hate you and moderating conversations. Prior to going into making conversations with people who hate me, Mm. were you on edge? Did you know what you were going to find? Did you question the whole process? Well, so naturally there was a curiosity. Like I said, the why of my why is I needed to see them as human in order to like take the next step forward with my life. Yeah. And then when I found that I really liked it, I hit a more complicated and thorny question is, am I doing something unethical? Mm. There were, of course, the people who, friends of mine who were like, what's the point? Like, they're not going to change. They are just, using quotes, trolls. The first season of the podcast was also coming out at a pivotal cultural moment. 2016, 2017 was this moment when the fault lines that, to be clear, always existed in society got so big that they became unmissable. Mm -hmm. Now it was part of the national conversation. The word resist was everywhere, Mm. right? Resist, resist, resist. It was on bumper stickers. It was in hashtags. It was in social media bios. And In a way, it was a very simple and poetic rallying cry. It sounded great. But as with a lot of poetic phrases that sound really good on paper, it is vague too, right? It's like, resist what? White supremacy? Yes, sign me up. Systemic racism? Absolutely. Empathy for people who think differently from Hmm. us? That's a little more complicated. And if we were in fact meant to resist that, then I'm certainly transgressing Mm. because I found myself really empathizing with my guests and I kind of had to really wrestle with whether or not I was doing something unethical. I thought like, you know, am I doing something wrong? Am I doing something morally corrupt? And then I had to realize the empathy I was feeling for my guests was not this thing that I was trying to muster, right? It wasn't this saintly, holy marvel (laughs) that I am such a good person, that I'm donating empathy to people who listeners don't think should have my empathy. 
But I think what I had to take a step back and understand is that the empathy I was having for my guests was not a saintly marvel. It was a natural byproduct of speaking with someone. Mm. And I, I did not have my halo on. I was just me talking to someone, getting to know who they were, telling them who I was. And then empathy was this kind of natural resource that came from that. And empathy is a really amazing natural resource because not only is it this kind of mundane inevitability from speaking with someone, but it's also then the fuel that keeps the conversation going. Mm. So it was like this renewable resource that I was finding in these conversations. And I I created a mantra for myself, and I'm always hesitant when I say it aloud because like, you know, it's like the title of my TED Talk and it's become a thing. But like every time I say it, it still resonates with me. So forgive me for quoting something <laughs> that is now like a concise. If you um, don't quote it, I you know, will. <laughs> so okay, go great. for it. <laughs> well, well it's, it's the idea that e- empathy is not endorsement. And those four words, empathy is not endorsement, has been the mantra that I have used to keep going throughout this show. Mm. This idea that like, no, you actually can empathize with people who think differently from you. You can also empathize with people who hurt you. And empathizing with them doesn't make that hurt that they threw on you bigger. It doesn't endorse some of their most dangerous ideologies. It does not cast a vote for their candidate. Empathy is just acknowledging that that is a human being who you're talking Mm -hmm. to, who you're speaking with. And that's crucial because it allows you to distinguish the macro from the micro. It allows you to distinguish the individual versus the harmful ideas they may espouse. Every time I got on the phone with someone who had said something homophobic to me, they immediately, you know, when you've seen cells like (laughs) uh, break apart under a microscope, Mm -hmm. it's like, or in science documentaries, I've never, I don't think, witnessed it with my (laughs) eyes. I can't say I have either, but yes. (laughs) Yeah, but you understand the the visual. Okay. But when the cells break apart, it's like, being on the phone with someone, the person breaks apart from the ideology. So I'm no longer speaking to homophobia, right? I'm no longer speaking to conservatism. I am speaking to Josh. Mm. I am speaking to any person who I've spoken to on this show, and they become just that person. And of course, if you flip it on social media, we confuse the macro and the micro so much that anytime someone, and every day someone does, they undeniably bubble up to the surface to become, to quote, I think the Twitter user's name was Maple Cocaine, the internet's main character, right? And like, when they bubble up to be the main character, you're both attacking everything they represent and also them, and the macro and micro are fused. Getting to know someone separates the macro from the micro. And we are now getting into the point of the show, which is like, there is a profound, subtle power in speaking with people, in actually getting to know them one-on-one, offline, or I should say off any platform that stokes the division. And Also, the point is I really want people to embrace the glacial, glacial speed 
of change. Mm. I think we have become so indoctrinated by social media to think that the showiest and most vicious clapback will prompt change in someone. When the truth is that change is this deeply slow, profoundly unsexy, very messy, dare I say, boring process Mm. that happens over time. Yeah. And so what I want people to hear on my show is like, no one is going to change in the course of one of my phone calls. You might hear someone's gears turning. Mm. You might hear someone articulate thinking about something in a new way. You do get really stunning golden moments of revelation, but I'm not going to undo decades of learning on a phone call. And dare I say, no one Mm. will. And so I think that's the point. The point is offering a public example of what it could look like to connect with people across difference, because I think the only word we have for conversation across difference is debate. So I think we default into this very gamified way of speaking with each other when we're just like trading barbs and talking points, who's going to win? And to that I say, what does winning a debate actually do? It just makes your side feel good or feel bad, depending on your performance. It's to kind of suggest a new form of communication, Mm. um, a new way to, I don't want to be so bold as say repair our fault lines, because I know that takes time, but to at least build bridges over the fault lines, even if those bridges are temporary, even if you get to safely walk across, safely come back, and then you get to coil up your your rope um, on your way back. Yeah, I really, really deeply empathize with that idea that empathy is not necessarily endorsement. When I have had really difficult conversations with people who have accused me of things Mm. um, that I didn't do. When I talk to people about this, they think, oh, wow, your powers of forgiveness are so profound. And I'm like, hold hold on a second. Mm. I didn't say that I forgave Mm. anyone. Mm. (laughs) Like, I, Mm. I just because I'm feeling their feelings with them doesn't mean that I'm now Mm. in this place of like saying you have atoned like you haven't. I think Mm. one of the interesting things of living in this space that you and I'm suggesting I am constantly living in and Mm -hmm. thinking about all this is like you you are living in this complicated space of feeling empathy for someone but also still feeling your feelings and feeling hurt and Mm -hmm. feeling angry and feeling resistance inside of yourself and wanting to fight back but also being like what is the point of fighting. Sometimes I wonder if it's just I'm a lover and not a fighter. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. I just feel the impulse to solve problems by being warm towards people instead of not. 100%. And someone might say, well, it takes all kinds. Like maybe you're the kind of person who solves problems through warmth and embrace, and then other people are solving problems through friction and coldness. Do you find that there's value in two different ways of approaching problems? Or do you think that there's something super powerful that everyone could gain from embracing Mm. the embrace as a a solve for problems? I think a lot of times when you disarm yourself, you disarm the other person too, Mm. inadvertently. I'm also naturally inclined to do this stuff. This is my preferred method of communication. When I was bullied 
in middle school and high school and even elementary school, what I most wanted to do is like kind of win the bullies over. And maybe that's a really sad thing to say, but a lot of the times I'm so not capable of fighting. The thing I gravitated towards was like, kind of really wanted to understand them. Like what happened to make you treat me Mm -hmm. that way? But I think it's important to call myself out on what I just said, which is like, that was actually not my gut reaction, right? My gut reaction is I want to get as far away from this person as possible, which I think is super important to say whenever I talk about my work, which is like, I know that I sound like the most cool, calm, collected, level-headed person, but like, I need to say that my first instinct when I received the hate online was to screenshot it, make fun of their typos, um, make jokes at the expense of the barb that they were sending to me. I, in a way, wanted to bite back Mm -hmm. at them. And I think the people who want to take the easy takeaway from my work are just like, see, we just got to talk to each other more and this is what we need. And like, the more we talk to each other, the better. And it's like, well, there are some people who actually don't feel safe enough to talk to their detractors. And I 100% hold space for the people who are like, God bless you on your journey with conversations with people who hate me, but you will never catch Mm -hmm. me doing that. And that's totally okay. There are other ways to move boldly forward towards our shared collective future. It does not involve everyone just getting on the phone with their detractors or empathizing with the people who hurt them. Because I think for some people, that does feel like a concession. Mm -hmm. When you're giving more power to people who already have power, that can feel horrible. And I'm really lucky Mm. to have the ability to do what I do, or I shouldn't say ability, that makes it sound like it's a talent. I'm very lucky and privileged to have the curiosity to do Mm. this. Um, And I have the patience because of my privilege. I know that the privilege is a really triggering word for people who hate talking about privilege, but like I do. I was not blessed with like the fighter mentality of like just dominate, dominate, dominate. But I I have another privilege, which is um, the curiosity to get to know people. And and I've found that that can be this strangely effective um, Mm. disarming tool to kind of defang people and get to know them. Receiving an onslaught of internet hate, I just want to be super clear, is a um, now tidy part of my history. So it's not this ongoing thing that I'm still dealing with. I, I think by creating conversations with people who hate me as a podcast, it almost worked as this weird deterrent that kept people away, or if they did, they knew that I was now doing a project directly based on the hate I was receiving. I also think that when I was making videos, I was way more public online in a front-facing way, whereas a podcast, and I'm so honored by the audience that has has found this show, but it, it's not the same thing as a video that's getting tens of millions of views on Facebook, which was the platform where my videos were most blowing up in that 2016 to 2017 period. But even though the hate has receded, Dylan hasn't run out of material. 
In more recent seasons of conversations with people who hate me, Dylan has stopped calling up his own internet haters. Instead, he moderates conversations between two other people who've had a disagreement online. One of the things that makes these conversations so difficult is while there is a distinction between the macro and the micro, the ideology and the person, mm -hmm. for many, many people, in fact, all of us, our ideologies feel personal to us. And so when we enter mm -hmm. into a conversation where our ideologies are being criticized or called into question, it feels like our very selves are being called into question. What do you mm. want by moderating a conversation like that? And how do you prepare yourself for all of the potential mm. things that could go wrong? From early on in the show, I had wanted to crack it open and expand it to more people. I, I didn't want episodes to become repetitive where I was treading the same ground with a different person who was essentially saying something similar to what someone else has said. You know, I was raised in a certain community that taught me that being gay is a sin. It's like, that's a really interesting story. And I definitely think it's important to reach out to those people and show them different reflections of uh, what queerness actually looks like when you're not taught to fear it. Um, but I wanted to bring in more stories. I wanted to bring in more types of hate, so to speak, that people encounter online. In terms of preparation, really it's about hyper-focusing on both of my guests. And that means making sure that everyone involved feels safe. So there's guest A and there's guest B. Guest A is typically the recipient of the hate. Guest B is typically the author of the hate. Although I've done a number of episodes that play with the formula. And person A needs to feel safe, but this kind of goes without saying but just because it goes without saying doesn't mean you should skim past it. They need to feel like they're talking to someone who they can reach, who they do not feel caged in by. They never exchange numbers unless they want to after the episode happens, as occurred uh, a few times. The only number they have is mine. So there's a kind of necessary distance that happens between them. Guest A needs to feel comfortable talking to them. Person B also needs to feel safe because this is not a gotcha podcast. I give every single one of my guests the ability to be as anonymous as they want. That means that they can use an alias first name, as many people have opted to do, and or they can distort their voice in, in post. Um, and I also tell everyone, you know, like this podcast is edited. So if you're saying something and you want to retract something, retract it. Also, I actually allow people to pull the plug on episodes afterwards um, in case they're like, I really can't have this going out. And that actually only happened mm. once. And I respected mm. that because I'm not going to win by exposing a person. I don't think I'm going to win by making someone lose their job. But essentially, safety for everyone is the biggest way I prepare. That's pre-production. In the conversation, I think it's keeping a really, really, really fine line, fine ear. Fine ear? What would you say? <laughs> a close ear? A tuned ear? A tuned ear, ear yeah, maybe. Um, attuned, a keeping an attuned <laughs> ear to when someone is feeling, like someone's feeling cornered, someone's feeling made to feel small. And I, I, I think it's very important to be transparent 
with my guests of what side I am more ideologically tied to. And I think it's actually more ethical to do that rather than pretend I am this neutral moderator who actually doesn't have a horse in the race and I don't believe in anything. It's like, no, of course I believe in things, but I want to make sure that this person does not feel ganged up on by me and someone I am more tied to in the voting booth. And so I need to hear if they're ever feeling ganged up on. I need to hear if person A is feeling like maybe we're entertaining person B's ideology so much that it's like, oh, wait, are we helping or are we just building a stump speech (laughs) for someone to explain what they believe? And so the more I can tether them each to a personal connection with each other, um, getting to their own whys, the really fundamental building blocks of why we believe what we believe, that's how you can get people to step outside of their conflict. Mm. And this happens on, I would say, the majority of conversations, and it's just a feeling. So I'm, I'm going to describe something very ephemeral right now. But that sense that when you no longer feel like you're talking to someone you're in opposition to, you're no longer talking to someone you're um, in a fight with, um, for lack of a better term, but instead you step outside of your conflict and kind of observe it as if it's this sculpture Mm. at a museum that you're both observing of like, oh, that's interesting. You feel this. And then when you feel this, I feel this. So let's discuss that. That is the heart of the show and the project, I'm most successful when I'm able to encourage my guests to go there Mm. together. For all three of us to be like, huh, oh yeah, like I, I noticed that and you said that and you felt this way and I noticed that dynamic. Do you guys recognize it? at all. And that's when it feels productive and and productive in a super quiet Mm. way, right? Like we don't have a a buzzer go off at the end and then the judges don't reveal their scores of who did better, right? right? Like everyone kind of goes off into their lives and and kind of just continues living. Yeah. I'm thinking about that thing that you said, which I absolutely believe to be true. And it's so frustrating for people to really reconcile with it, that change Mm if it happens at all, happens incredibly, Mm -hmm. incredibly slowly. And very often there's like two steps forward, one step back. It's this fluid thing of two forces moving against each other. I'm, I'm curious, when you are talking with people and getting them to sort of observe their own conflict as if it is in front of them as opposed to on top of them, Mm. Is it a conversation Mm. about facts? Is it a conversation about feelings? Mm. Because in my own experience, I feel like people use facts to justify feelings. And so like trying to unravel and get to that why place is sometimes as simple as being like, well, I feel uncomfortable. And, (laughs) you know, like. Yeah, what a great question. And, And I think you're actually helping me articulate something for the first time. And I'm really happy you posed it this way of like, is it feelings or is it facts? Because I think, again, it's option C, the marriage mm. of the two, which is that when when you get people to a place where they see the other person's feeling as their own personal fact, when like you say, well, no matter how I feel, n- no matter what I disagree with, no matter what research I can monologue at you right now, you know, no matter what data I can throw in your face, 
You feel hurt by something I just said, and that is a fact according to you, and I'm going to trust you that that is a fact. You feel hurt. So what can I do with that? And also, not as an ending point, but as an invitation into the next stage of the conversation. Seeing it as an invitation to be like, oh, you feel hurt, but you actually feel hurt because of something that I was feeling before. And so that is also a fact. That is my fact. And perhaps the folks out there who are quote-unquote rational thinkers who only believe in fact-based debate and couldn't possibly imagine how feelings are facts, it's like, that's actually like the skeleton key to keep opening doors with people, to keep building those bridges, is to really respect how someone feels when they're talking about how they feel themselves, which is to say, you could also say homophobia is a feeling. <laughs> you know, like, well, I just feel that gay people are mm. blank. Well, that's actually a feeling about someone else. You know, what we can talk about is what being around queer people makes you feel, and then that is worth mm. investigating. Before conversations with people who hate me, and even before his videos for Seriously TV, Dylan was a live performer. He was a member of the New York Neo-Futurists, a group that produced short plays in which, as he writes in his book, we never wrote jokes, our comedy came from the tasks we forced ourselves to do, and we never played characters, we only performed as ourselves. This is because there was one rule we followed, we couldn't lie. Everything we wrote, and every task we performed had to be true. Each week I had to write new plays and this ongoing assignment taught me to take stock of everything around me, interrogate exactly how I felt about it and translate that feeling into art. I soon began to process daily life as a series of prompts and I met each of these prompts with a question. What am I going to do about it? The thing that really resonated with me when reading about how you were writing plays and and everything was true mm -hmm. was that feeling of encountering moments in your life and going what am i going to do about it like because mm -hmm. ultimately mm -hmm. that's the mm -hmm. only thing that we can do is like we can have feelings about mm -hmm. it all we want and get angry about it all we want but ultimately what ends up happening is we do something about it. And sometimes mm -hmm. we're mm -hmm. intentional about the things that we do about our feelings, and sometimes we're not intentional. And so ultimately it feels to me like what you're attempting to do is be intentional about what you do about the things that happen to you, which really resonates with me because one of the things that's always really bothered me about my own experience is like this huge fundamentally defining thing about my life that everybody hmm. knows about me is something that happened hmm. to me. It's not something that I yeah. did. And so right, what do right, you right. do about that? Just, right. <laughs> That's the ultimate question that any one of us is facing in the big and little moments of our lives is, okay, we feel a yeah. way, a thing happened. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. The rule is you have to tell the truth. And so I think that's such a helpful um, limitation because I think creativity really only thrives in constraints. I think um, there's something very 
almost paralyzing about a blank Mm. canvas. And in many ways, conversations with people who hate me came directly from that. It was this like, okay, I I could continue weaving these fictional backstories. Um, I could create a satirical show called Troll Hunting where I like dive through everyone's profile and broadcast who I think this person Mm. is. Or I could go right Mm -hmm. to the source and say, who Mm -hmm. are you? And then have them define themselves on their own terms. And that has proven to be a much more rewarding endeavor. It's so tempting to dismiss people we disagree with particularly people who've hurt us, to believe that they are evil monsters out to get us or deeply sad people lashing out because they themselves are in pain. But that's the easy story. We're interested in the honest one. And we hope you are too. If you are, check out Dylan's podcast, Conversations with People Who Hate Me, and his book of the same name. You can also find him at dylanmarin.com and follow him at dylanmarin on Instagram and Twitter. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell everyone, even the people who may hate me, to check out Labyrinths. This episode was written and produced by us and Sophia Gates with editing and sound design by Josh Thane and theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Hello, listener. This episode of Labyrinths could be ad-free, but that requires exclusive access. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to become a monthly Patreon subscriber, which will grant you access to top-secret patron-only content. This podcast will self-destruct without your support. Was that too cheesy? Who doesn't like cheese? Visit patreon.com slash Robinson.